Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. You might know her a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I can I can introduce our guest and I'll I'll, I'll preface this interview with saying uh, I'll go out on a limb and say uh, completely biased, but it, it's my favorite guest to the podcast so far. Of what is this episode one fifty four? I believe this is going to be. But uh, our guest today is uh, Nicole Bitter. Uh, she's my wife, uh, a fellow ultra marathon athlete, and. Um, all in all, just a, a busy person, I think, would be a good way to probably describe you, Nicole. <laughs> and, and I think we can dive into a few different things revolved around kind of your lifestyle of training and kind of how you perform at a high level in ultra marathons, as well as keep a, a very busy full-time job as, a, as an attorney. But um, we might want to just start off you giving us, have you give some of our audience a bit of a background about yourself, kind of how you got into running, how you got into ultra marathon running, and then we can dive into kind of how you make it all work with a full-time uh, job. Okay, sure. So thank you all for having me on today. Um, I love this split headphone look. It looks pretty <laughs> awesome. But um, in terms of running, I actually started out running in seventh grade. Um, so I've um, now been running for, gosh, um, too way too long, um, given my age. So I actually went out for the basketball team in seventh grade and um, the gym teacher pulled me aside when she saw I couldn't shoot a layup and said, I saw you running the mile in gym class and I think you have a better shot of um, going out for cross country. You're not going to make the basketball team. So I kind of decided at that point, okay, well, I want to be on a school sport. I better stick with um, cross country. And so I guess I found my talent. So I've been running ever since. I ran in high school. I ran collegiately at Northwestern. And then um, following college, I decided I really just wanted to run recreationally in a stress release. So I started out um, actually getting more into trail running when I lived in Texas in Waco. Um, they actually had a pretty good trail network there. And I just um, continued running through law school, graduated, moved to Dallas, and happened to adopt a very crazy dog um, who was so high energy that she had to go out twice a day. And I found that um, she really got me back in shape. So I started um, getting more into marathon running and then um, found my love of ultra running. So that's kind of how I, I guess I owe. Um, my love of running to my dog and my seventh grade gym teacher. Yeah, you know, you you highlighted a few things there that that I've always found interested about kind of your approach to running, and, and part of it just has to do with your personality in general, um, which I get a kind of a front row seat to. And you know, a lot of times when I'm coaching other people or where I'm looking at my own personality and trying to design a training plan that 
is going to work for someone, sometimes I'll look at their personality to try to find out like where are their, where do their motivations come from? Where, what is kind of their structure? What do they need to, to trust the program to make it work and to make it sustainable? And sometimes you can glean a lot from kind of their work life or their day-to-day life. So you'll get these folks who are like very kind of type A, detail-oriented, like numbers people, like that sort of personality. A lot of times that translates over to the way they like to prepare for a race. They like to, you know, look at splits. They like to look at heart rate. They like to look at different data pieces on platforms like Strava or Training Peaks and stuff like that and really do deep dives into that. And I would say that mentality is very, very similar to your work life. Like you're very um, on top of things, very proactive, very schedule orientated, and you have a process, you know where you need to be, you know when you need to be there and you get it done and you get it done well. But then when you start running, you do a 180. (laughs) You don't want to wear a watch. You don't necessarily want to know what your pace is. You're almost, the way I see it is you're using it as like kind of a release or an outlet or like, you want to do something completely different from your normal life because you get so much of that already in your normal life. Am I on point with that? Yes, absolutely. I think for me, running should be a stress release and not feel like a job or not feel like an additional stressor. So I try and keep it um, very similar to that approach. Um, That's always kind of been, for me, it's how I think leads to longevity in the sport. So I think if I treated it more like a job, I would just have a much more um, likelihood of feeling burnt out and not being as motivated. But when I kind of keep it enjoyable and fun, that that approach works a lot better for me. And then I feel like it, it reinvigorates the rest of the components of my life. So it makes me more um, willing to put in the long day at work and all the travel associated with my job. So I think running kind of gives me that additional extra step um, every day. And I just feel like it, um, it does reinvigorate me. So I think the approach works well. And Nikki, so you recently, I mean, obviously you're competing. You're not just a, a casual runner. I mean, you, you just competed in the Western States, which is one of the premier ultra, ultra marathon you know, runs in the, in the world. And so you've actually sort of turned this into more than just a stress relief fun type thing to an actual, you know, high level competitive thing, kind of like Zach. I mean, how do you, I mean, cause that, that obviously, how do you make that work as a, as a, you know, full-time, you know, attorney and, uh, uh, are you, are you finding that, uh, well, obviously you having Zach as, as, as a, I mean, it, I guess it's a two-edged sword because he's got to train too. And I mean, you know, like I said, it's, you know, you, you, you can lean on each other to do that stuff, but somebody's got to take care of the dog. Somebody's got to run the house, you know, that type of stuff. How, how does that work for you? What's the, what's the, what's the relationship like with do you and Zach run together? I mean, obviously, well, I don't know if you guys are, you can you train together with, with, with the paces you oh. guys run? Yeah, I mean, it kind of actually works out well because it's a way that we can spend time together, which is kind of fun. So um, when Zach is kind of having an easy day and I'm running hard, then it works out pretty well. So he'll pace me for some of my workouts. Um, And so that is always a plus. I have a built-in pacer for all of my big competitions. So at Western States, Zach was running with me for 40 miles. So that is the added bonus. And then I think in terms of life, um, 
I'm very lucky because he always pitches in. So I do travel a lot. Um, and Zach's always willing to help out at home. So I think we share things pretty evenly, which is nice. I guess it's kind of more of the, the modern day couple, how, um, you know, it's more 50-50 than um, specific roles. So um, on for that, to me, it works out pretty well, but it's chaotic. I mean, life is stressful and um, it's not always easy to balance everything. That's for sure. Um, I have my moments where I kind of feel overwhelmed, but I think if you just break it up and get your run in every morning, it helps just put in perspective. Okay, now I have my time for my job. Um, I think a coach in high school that I really admired always said it best that you only have so much time in the day. So you just have to give your best to that element of time. And that's what I try and do. So I try and give give my best effort in on my morning run, try and give the best effort I can um, for my job. And then, you know, also make time for family and friends, my dog. And I think you you highlight a few things that are kind of unique or, or interesting about you too. And and Nicole's not going to come out here and start bragging about herself. So I'll do a little bragging for her. But um, I mean, you're a talented runner. Like, you, what was your what was your mile PR in high school? Um, I'll never touch it again. But it was five oh eight point six. So. And then, uh, so that that what place did that get you at the state meet in Illinois? I didn't run that, but I ran the two mile and I, I don't know, I'm getting too old to remember these things, but I was probably like six, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what again, what I'm getting at here is like, no one's going to argue that there's not a semblance of natural talent or just like, you know, you're, you're a good runner. Um, you've got at least some genetics working for you in that compartment. But I think the thing that sticks out to me the most about your success in running is less to do with, you know, how good you were just naturally, but like how much work you were able to put into it. And some of that I kind of compare to my own trajectory into running. Cause when I look at kind of how I got in this sport, it was, I would say fairly relaxed compared to yours. I, I probably started taking running. It, you could consider it serious maybe by my junior, senior year in high school. And then it was my senior year when I started to run kind of year round, whereas you kind of really gravitated toward it super early, like in middle school, you were already starting to kind of train year round for track and cross country. And uh, I find that unique too, because I just, you know, when you look at the landscape of endurance athletes, sometimes when you see folks getting, getting started that soon and being competitive, you know, you end up with decades and decades of that kind of ebb and flow of running, of success, you know, good years, bad years. And you almost have to really develop a patience and understanding for the process or you'll find yourself getting too frustrated. And I think the last couple of years, if we fast forward kind of more into your ultra running where you are now is kind of a nice little microcosm of that. Because if we look at your season last year, you know, it was a tough season for you, I think. I mean, you had some good races for sure, but you also had some races where uh, I think you look back on and you're like, okay, well, there were some mistakes made there. There were some hurdles uh, and we really unpack it. it. It's, it, it's interesting because you had a lot of life changes too. It, it's like you, you moved, you, we got married, you, uh, um, you know, you changed jobs. We didn't change jobs. We essentially got promoted to a different position in your job. So there's a lot of new things going on and then trying to keep the consistency of running in a new place. 
and get all that stuff going is is sometimes you, you as endurance learners, I think we justify in our mind, oh, we're ready for this, or or this is going to be uh, optimally prepared for. But in reality, other things kind of play a role and make it more difficult. But you, as endurance learners, you also kind of recognize like if you're consistent, you're impatient. You may have a year that goes poorly or suboptimally, and then you might have a year where you're you're winning everything you do and you're having a great race. You feel like you can't do anything wrong. And I think that's where we're starting to skew a little closer to you for this year, starting to kind of find that groove again. And uh, for a little context, let's see, like you started the year and you won a few races that are more local to Phoenix, the Mesquite Canyon 50K, um, the Whiskey Basin 88K, and then Zane Gray, which is kind of a more historic, uh, uh, popular event here in kind of the Southwest that you won. And that all kind of led up to your Western States performance where, uh, you were seventh female, uh, in like Sean was mentioning, Western States is in North America by far the most competitive hundred miler. And then internationally, it's go, probably goes back and forth between UTMB as the most competitive in the world. Um, but I mean, I think it's like really interesting to kind of see that, that process kind of take place and, uh, like the work that you're doing to kind of get ready for that stuff. And then also you've been in the sport long enough too, where you see the changes. I think the sport has changed quite a bit in the last five to 10 years. And I mean, you've been sixth place twice before at Western States. Uh, this year you ran, what was it? 80 minutes faster than you ever have in the past. Uh, and this year that was good for seventh place. So it just kind of shows how deep and competitive the sport has gotten. And uh, it also shows like, I think a couple other cool things I like to look for, which are like, who are the athletes that are consistent and have longevity in the sport? And if you can further look and kind of dig deeper into the results at Western States this year, uh, kind of a, a what I think is a cool tidbit or piece of information is uh, you are also the oldest person in the top 10 by four years. So, uh, you know, the sport is getting younger and it's getting more deep and competitive, mm -hmm. but um, that doesn't mean you have to necessarily uh, change what you're doing necessarily. You just need to kind of adapt to, to the, the climate and also, you know, kind of keep doing what you know is work. So how, what would, what's your view on that? How have you seen kind of the sport maybe change in the last couple of years and how has that changed the way you look at things and prepare for races? Yeah, and I mean, I, I can definitely attest that the sport is um, is changing. It's getting faster. It's just more competitive. So um, I would have thought on um, if I would have been running Western States four or five years ago, that my, my time would have gotten me a much higher place. Um, but it's a testament, and it's great to watch. It's great to watch the women's field just accelerating in terms of the talent of the participants. Um, people are specializing in ultra running. They're doing it almost more as a full-time job. Um, and so I'm impressed by the caliber of the competitors. So it's fun to participate in. Um, it is interesting. It's As you get older, um, you just have to embrace the challenge and look at those who you're running against and be proud that you're part of it and you're still hanging on, I guess. But um, I am now 37. So gosh, I mean, I, I can't say that I feel like I 
I, I can tell the difference from an age perspective, but I'm just wondering how much longer I have until I really, I notice that, that recovery changes and things, because I would think probably in the next couple of years, I should probably start noticing it from what I've been told. Don't tell that to Sean because you're st- you're still young right. compared to him, <laughs> well, and he's still PRing, so you got years left. Yeah, he's a uh, he's incredible. But... <laughs> yeah, I, mean, well, I don't know. I mean, with strength sports, it seems like you know conventionally people seem to peak you know with their maximum and just pure strength sometime somewhere in their kind of early to mid thirties. That seems to be where people do. Yeah. Most. Sprinters tend to peak earlier, but it seems like distance runners seem to have a little bit longer longevity than some of these other sports. And I, you know, I, I don't know why well, I suspect that there's some, some reasons why that, but I would suspect you probably still have quite a few years left of high level competition. Isn't it? I mean, because didn't we have uh, who is it? We had on early Bronco Billy that uh, yeah. Jeff Browning. Mm-hmm. How old is he? He's in his late forties, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Yeah. I think he's 48 now. Yeah. So yeah, he's, and, and Jeff, to, to kind of go back to what we were talking about, Nicole being the oldest top 10 finisher on the women's side, Jeff was actually the oldest top 10 finisher on the men's side by probably a much larger margin, I would guess. You were four years older yeah. than the, the next oldest. I think Jeff was probably, I'm trying to think. 15. <laughs> probably, probably 10 or so. I, I'm trying to think if there was any other 40-year-olds. I don't think yeah. so in the top 10 this year on the men's side. Uh, and one thing that I find interesting about that is Jeff, obviously, he skews a little more to my personality when it comes to running and nutrition, where we love the details. We like digging in. We get curious about that stuff. We like the numbers and, you know, testing things and looking at that data. Whereas you kind of do it more kind of uh, intuitive, I guess maybe intuitively is a way to say it. I mean, you just do it. And the thing I find interesting about you not only your training that we talked about, which is you know, no watch, you kind of go by feel is that's kind of how your nutrition is as well. Um, but your nutrition, you kind of just almost naturally gravitated closer to a high fat, low carb approach. Um, just not necessarily looking at X number of grams, making sure you're kind of just doing what your body tells you to do. And you've more or less been doing that since what college? Yeah, I would say so. I really haven't changed much since college. Um, and I would say I have more of a high fat approach. Um, I would say I strategically have carbs more, um, after a run and then more towards dinner. So I like bread and that's when I'll typically have it. But, um, yeah, for the most part, otherwise I, 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 I pretty much follow, a pretty standard routine. I just find that I have done well on that. So I don't like to change it. Well, and I think one of the interesting story I always have with, with your nutrition, since it's harder to maybe put a label on it, since you're not actively kind of paying as close attention to grams and ratios and things like that is, you know, last fall, I've talked about this a few times on this podcast. I did a little bit more of a deep dive into like my own uh, fat adaptation, I guess you can call it during one of my peak training blocks last fall. And I was testing for about a three week period during a peak training block about two or three times throughout the course of the day. And one of those days, I think I was maybe like two thirds of the way through that, that little N equals one experiment. And I was testing my blood ketone levels and, and Nicole wandered in and saw me doing it. And she's like, Oh, can I try that? Yeah. <laughs> so we actually tested her blood ketones just randomly one afternoon. And it was, it was funny. Cause I think, uh, I think I had like 1.8 millimoles that afternoon. And then we tested Nicole and she was like 2.2. 2. 
<laughs> so it's like here I am doing like all this like strategic stuff and and then Nicole's just you know you know scoring higher on that not that I don't know that that's necessarily important or not but it is kind of interesting to think like that was maybe the first time in your life you ever even thought about a millimole oh, blood yeah. ketone level yeah for sure <laughs> I like, haven't thought about it since so everyone who's doing backflips to get their blood ketones up are going to be so angry at you for <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think it's interesting because like, I mean, you and, and Bronco Billy both kind of skew towards that, that at least some form of a high fat, low carb diet. I, I, I wouldn't call what you do strict ketogenic or anything like that by any means. Yeah. But, you know, in the context of your lifestyle, it just happens to be that way. Like your feeding window, if you want to call it that, is probably a lot tighter than most people. Um, and part of it's how I've adapted is just fitting in my job and running and things. I just find that life is crazy so it almost is so much nicer to be um fat adapted so you don't have to be as strict about okay i need to eat right now i can just go through for longer windows so i think it saves me a lot of time yeah you can you can eat a big meal and, and then wait a lot longer yeah yeah i mean that, that's i mean that is a good point and i find that very good too because yeah sometimes you don't you don't get to eat when you think you want to and yeah. It's not. It's not a problem when you're you're kind of you know a little used to uh, you know you know running your own body fat a little better. Interesting that um, you know uh, one of the thoughts that that myself and others I think probably guys like Tim Noakes would share is that uh, from a longevity standpoint, you know there may be some advantage outside of performance, you know, with with a little bit of carbohydrate restriction. Not necessarily everyone's zero carb or ketogenic, but it does seem like. Uh, we see more and more athletes have longer careers, more durability uh, with this, you know, carbohydrate restriction. And so ultimately, you know, if you look at overall performance, it takes it takes a number of years of training to get there. And so if you, you know, have the fortune to have those years, you can get really good. Whereas people that kind of burn out real quickly, a lot of times they have short careers or often, they're, they're, you know, and I want, I want to, you know, ask about maybe your injury uh history have you been able to be pretty much injury free throughout your throughout your career well yeah so I actually just bizarrely had to go and get a physical yesterday for a big race we're doing called the Spartathlon in um, Greece so they require you to basically get a doctor to sign off that you're healthy and when I was going through kind of my medical history I've never broken anything I really only had soft tissue injuries um, a couple throughout um, my life. So I would say every couple years, I have some kind of um, soft tissue issues. So last year I had some plantar, um, I've had some issues with, um, you know, calf tightness, but it's never, I, I've never had a stress fracture or anything like that. So I've been very fortunate. Um, and so that's, I'm, I'm hopeful to keep it up. And I would say, like, if you're looking at just average injury frequency amongst endurance athletes in general, and we look at the full body of your career, I mean, you're almost always healthy. It's like, you know, you've had a couple injuries. Um, and sometimes that's just a little bit of a reality, I think, of doing a sport where you're 
pushing beyond what maybe the human body was intended to kind of do. You, you, you just take some risks, I think, to prepare for a race sometimes. Or for you, it could also just be, you know, you get a month of work where you're traveling uh, every week and, you know, your sleep's getting disrupted. You're going back and forth and, and you try to squeeze in like an extra long run without enough sleep. And that's when some of that stuff can maybe crop up. And that's more or less outside the realm of nutrition to a degree. Uh, but overall, I mean, you've been very healthy uh, as, a, as an endurance athlete. And I think a lot of people would look at the relative health you've had. And I think that plays a role into your continuation of being successful is just like you don't ever have big swaths of time where you're kind of couch or bedridden due to injury, where you lose all of your fitness and have to kind of start from square one and yeah. rebuild it all back up where when you start to get to the pointy end of the spear, you know, that can sometimes take a year or two to kind of get back to full form because you need that base and that foundation back in place. So if you can kind of keep that base and foundation in place your entire career or the majority of it, it just makes it so much easier to peak for a specific race with a lot less time. Uh, and that's where I would describe kind of maybe a strength of yours. Now for a word from our sponsors. This episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Fat Snacks. Fat Snacks' mission is to make foods that taste incredible and make a keto or low-carb diet more enjoyable and sustainable. Personally, I'll throw a pack of their chocolate chip cookies in my travel bag when on the road or away from my kitchen. Other options include double chocolate chip, lemony lemon, and peanut butter. Next time someone tells you a keto diet is too restrictive, blow their minds by telling them to head over to fatsnacks.com forward slash HPO. That's F-A-T-S-N-A-X dot C-O-M forward slash HPO and type in promo code HPO for 5% off their next order. Now back to the show. Nikki, do you do any, uh, you know, because I know Zach does some strength training. You know, I'm, I'm always sort of of the belief that, you know, people should be doing some strength training. And particularly, I think women, it's very important for a number of reasons, you know, not only to preserve bone map, but I think for just for general function and health. Is that part of your program? Do you train with Zach? I mean, how do you, who program, does Zach do your programming? Am I, am I just saying that he, he helps you with your, with your, with your training plan or how does that work? Yeah, Zach is pretty much, um, been so fortunate enough to um, assume the role as my coach. So um, <laughs> lucky you, Zach. Um, I hope I'm a good pupil. But um, no, I Zach does um, really help me with the coaching. But I have historically lifted since I was in high school. So that's always been part of my routine. I would say I lift three to four times a week. Um, pretty consistently and it's not big efforts so um, I'm not doing really long sessions in the gym but I am doing probably 30 minutes or so 20 minutes um, so I definitely make sure to get that in because I, I do think that's important um, so I I um, yeah I've always been really consistent with that as well yeah, and I think too, Nicole, as if, if we separate Nicole as my wife and Nicole as my coaching client, more or less, it's like, she's an interesting coaching client, partly just because I have, you know, basically, <laughs> basically 24-7 access to kind of like what you're doing. So, you know, it's also, 
uh, gives the flexibility where like I can actually be out there in the field with you, so to speak. And being an athlete that kind of more thrives with, with less kind of specific structure or very specific splits. I think that's very helpful because, you know, I can just say, Hey, today you're doing a 90 minute run. And I might not even tell you necessarily what you're going to do within that 90 minutes, but I just tell you you're running with me today and then I can dictate the pace and the intensity. And, uh, you know, you can can just kind of follow along and, and do it. And you're really good at that. Like you're, you're the type of client I would describe that's kind of, you have to work in a reverse direction of what most people suspect. I think most people suspect when you're coaching someone, your role is going to be to motivate them, get them excited and, and talk them up and get them to do the work. Whereas you do get clients that are from the other end of the spectrum where, I mean, I could give basically a limitless amount of workouts to Nicole and she would do them. So I need to pay more attention to, is she bouncing back from these workouts? How much time does she need between sessions? Uh, because for her, it's not a matter of, is she willing to do it? It's a matter of like doing the right amount at the right time and not overdoing it almost. Would you agree? Yeah, <laughs> probably so. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, I think it's just an interesting reflection kind of on your personality as a whole as well. And I think it's something else that'd be kind of maybe fun to dive into too is, just the other side of the window for you. Like when you're not running, your life is, uh, you know, quite a bit different where, you know, you're, you're an attorney for a company. Uh, so you are very detail oriented. You are asked to do things and you're, you know, you've got high level clients that rely on you making sure things get done in an orderly manner and in the right time or, or, you know, people get angry. <laughs> so, uh, I think that adds a little bit of intrigue into it and, and, and just, the field of law in general, I think you probably have a unique perspective too. And, and I was actually looking at some data on that uh, not too long ago, where um, I think in modern days, you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the podcast, we're starting to see kind of some things change where uh, we're, we're, we're breaking stereotypes, so to speak, where if you go back a couple of decades, I mean, you look at the field of law and it would be very male driven, like mostly men uh, high percentage ratios of men to women. Whereas now, if you look at like collegiate graduates, uh, from law programs, we're actually seeing, you know, 50, 51% of the current graduates being women. So you have an interesting perspective where you've been practicing law for, is it 11 years now about yeah. 11 or 12 wow. years? So you were kind of maybe that first crop of, uh, upswing where we've kind of started to see more women enter that. And, I think you, you probably notice a lot where through that process, there's still a lot of kind of old thought about like, well, this is the type of job where, you know, a man should be doing it, not a woman. And you get, see and hear some of that stuff. Have you, what's been your kind of experience over the last decade, kind of being part of that wave of women getting into the field of law? Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, I haven't seen a lot of limits on me in my career. So I feel like the times are changing quite a bit. Um, I started out and I worked at a litigation firm. Um, and now I do, um, I work for a consulting firm and do all employee benefits. So it's, it's somewhat of a different role. It's more, um, helping large employers stay compliant and avoid litigation. Um, but throughout, my career, I've been fortunate to have a number of mentors, both women and men, 
who have been really supportive and continue to push me to grow. Um, I think that's kind of one of the cool elements about ultra running is they see that you can run a hundred miles and they say, okay, I think, I think she can do a lot. I think, you know, we have to keep pushing her. So I've been fortunate to have those mentors leading me and, and pushing me to keep advancing in my career. Um, so I am very thankful that I'm, I've grown up in the time now where um, there aren't as many limitations put on me in terms of a career, but I know from others that it's not as easy. So I feel like I've just been very fortunate in my position. So um, I know, again, others struggle um, are at, at this point still. So I hope we continue to see growth in this area. Um, obviously, I'm very, I feel like it's very important yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned, uh, just the, the idea of like your kind of ultra running side or career, how that maybe looks to your, your coworkers or your, your, your clients. And, uh, I mean, it, it, it has to look impressive to a degree. And I think to maybe put an image on that, I think back to this year at Western States where, you know, Western States is on a Saturday morning, starts at 5.00 AM. And I think we flew in, what on Thursday, the week, the Thursday before the race and the day leading in is oftentimes kind of stressful at that specific event. Cause there's a lot of different kind of, uh, pre-race festivity type stuff. They like to highlight the athletes and they like to do like a lot of different interviews and things like that. So you can find yourself in a situation where you have like, you know, 24, 36 hours of kind of just like behind the scenes stress or camera stress, like photography stress, that sort of stuff. And then, the whole physical stress of running the race itself. And um, it's, it's hard to describe to folks who've maybe not run a hundred miles before, but the amount it takes out of you is one piece of the puzzle, but then the kind of sleep deprivation is a whole nother side of that, that equation where you get up at, you start a race at 5.00 AM. You're probably getting up no later than 4.00 AM. So you might not get a ton of sleep the night before. Plus sometimes it's hard to sleep the night before a big event like that anyway. Then you finish at, well, we finished just before midnight, right. or you did. Yeah. I was just pacing. <laughs> it was but, a team. <laughs> but you finish just before midnight, and you're just so wired from the experience. By the time you get back to the hotel room, you know, get washed up, get something to eat, you know, it's 2, 3 in the morning, and you're you're just super sore. So, like, you're if you do fall asleep, you're probably waking up and rolling around, and you're not going to get very good sleep that night either. So then you're kind of two nights of compromised sleep, plus you ran 100 miles, and Sunday afternoon, after the award ceremony, you hopped on a plane, flew to Chicago, and we're in meetings by 8 a.m. Monday morning. And, uh, you know, that I think is something that impresses me the most about what you're doing, more so than just the running in, in general. And, you know, I think back to kind of when, when we first met, you know, I've always thought of myself as a hard worker. And I've, I've certainly had times in my life where I had to do uh, you know, a lot of uh, efficiency things in my schedule. Like when I was a full-time teacher, it wasn't rare at all. I'd wake up at 4 a.m., go for a two-hour run, go to work, spend lunch uh, drafting coaching client uh, plans rather than kind of sitting and relaxing, doing the other half of the day of the work, then coaching track, getting into maybe another run, and then not getting to bed till 9 or 10, and then trying to do it over again. I, I can remember some of those years, like you just look forward to summer break where I could finally kind of <laughs> catch up on things. And, and ultimately, like, you know, I, I essentially switched jobs for that very reason. So I have more control of that stuff. So 
like, I think one thing I learned from you specifically is, oh, there's a whole nother level to this hard work thing. <laughs> and, and you show that very, very well. And just your, your ability just to kind of sustain that is, is, is pretty impressive. But, you know, what are some of the comments that your coworkers make on a situation like that, where you come in Monday morning after an event or a weekend like Western States, and you're, you know, you're ready for a 10, 12 hour day of, of meetings and, and clients and things like that. I mean, at this point, I think they're just used to me. So they just kind of laugh and shake their head. And, um, you know, they ask me questions about the race, which is nice, but yeah, I, you know, I like the balance of it. So I like being able to have a hard effort with a race and then get to go to work because it's almost like it keeps everything in perspective and I don't have too much of just running. I think for me, if all I did was run, I would, I wouldn't do very well. I think I'd be very much in my head. I like the balance of having the two elements where I spend a lot of time um, and distribute it pretty well. So I, I like the balance between having the time put towards running and then the time put towards my job. I think it works well for me. And I ultimately think I do better at both aspects um by having that balance did you guys meet due to ultra running i just don't know what you are did you i mean or, or nikki did you, did you turn into an ultra runner after you met zach i mean what was the what was the sort of what, what was the uh initial way you guys got together yeah no so um my ultra running um preceded meeting zach we actually met um I think in 2016 at um, a camp RWB for trying to get veterans into trail running. Um, but we had known each other previous to that. We were both running for ultra. So um, we had both been athletes on the team. So um, we knew of each other through that. And we met at athlete summits before, but I think we started to spend time together after that, um, that RWB camp. What was it? What was it that made you opt ultra running instead of marathon running or five Ks? Or where, where did you where did you sort of make that as your decision? And, and like Zach, are you now looking to go beyond and not start doing twenty four hour or longer stuff? Uh, well, so um, I started ultra running because I was running and I was living in Dallas and I was running as part of a group that would meet on Saturdays. And we had a couple guys who said, you know, would always talk about their ultra runs and they would just talk about how hard it was and how challenging it was. And I kind of thought, I think I can do that. I think I'd be really good at that. Um, it just seemed like something that I'd always loved the longer efforts. So I decided, okay, one weekend I'm going to try and go sign up and do a race. So I ultimately went and participated in a Captain Carl's night race in, in around Austin, Texas. And I just found that um, ultra running was my thing. So I, that's kind of how I um, really started doing the ultra runs, just through some encouragement of friends. I just kept um, opting for the longer distance run. And in terms of like future endeavors, I am a bit different than Zach. I do not do well on the track. I, the track is not appealing to me in any way. So I don't even really, I love going to cheer Zach on, but I don't even really love 
watching the track races. I just, for some reason, they make me nervous. I think in high school and middle school, I had to do so many workouts around the track. I just, I've never really liked them since. I prefer the trail runs. Um, so if ever, even if it's really not tailored to um, the topography of my backyard, I prefer to try out a tough race. So I've run um, a number of races just on mountain terrain. Um, and ironically, I've run longer than Zach in terms of dis in, in terms of time. So I've run UTMB and it took me 30 hours um, just because it was in the Alps and just um, it was doing a lot of climbing. So the race we're doing coming up, both Zach and I are doing the Spartathlon will probably take me longer than 24 hours. Um, and so I guess that will be another effort. I, I'm pretty nervous about it um, and because I'm not like Zach, so the road element scares me a bit, but we'll see. I mean, if we're talking about the Spartathlon, I hope it takes you more than 24 hours because if you're under 24, then I've got to worry about you beating me. So. Yeah, so I'm not going to be under 24. Spartathlon's kind of an interesting event. It's one of the older, more historic ultra marathons. It's 153 miles on kind of hilly roads. And uh, it's, uh, it's more or less, I mean, the, the course record for the men is 20 hours and 25 minutes, uh, but that's like... I want to say maybe a couple hours faster than the next fastest guy. The guy who has the course record right now actually has, I think, four of the fastest five times on that course with his course record being kind of the outlier of all of them. So it's, it's one of those events where I think it's like, it's a good one to do to kind of get ready for a 24 hour because it's got the added intrigue of being a historic event. It's point to point you kind of have that fixed finishing spot there. So you don't necessarily think about how long you're out there as much as you start just saying, I got to get to this checkpoint, to this checkpoint, to this checkpoint. And I think that can kind of help the mental aspect of maybe doing a 24 hour. Uh, at least that's what I'm hoping for my own training and, and racing. And, and Nicole, you're in a little bit of a different situation where, you know, you've run 30 hours before. So uh, I have no doubt if you have a good day, you're going to finish well under 30 hours. Uh, but you know, it's still, it's a long time out there. So it's, it's one of those things where you have to think about, well, I'm going to literally run through the night at some point, regardless of when it starts, when you're starting to talk about times that far. And, and that can be a little bit daunting or intriguing, even if you've done, done something similar to that before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find the adrenaline usually kicks in. So it kind of, it motivates you to keep going. You want to get to that finish line. So is there, I mean, it just seems like it gets longer and longer for most people. It, it seems there's, you know, more people that do marathons and then they progress up to the 50 yeah. miles and then the 100 miles. And then you keep wanting to just go farther and farther. And, and, you know, I mean, Zach, there's not people running for three days straight and stuff like that. Some absolute crazy stuff. But do you ever, is there any people that do the opposite where they, they, they do the ultra marathon and say, nah, I want to go back to marathon running? Is that, do you see that happen very often? Um, yeah, I mean, if I was faster, that's all I would do. I would just do marathon running. Um, that distance is really interesting to me. And um, just the element of going faster, I think, is great. But I think it's fun to just switch it up. And um, so I'm hoping to do a fast marathon this winter just to do something different because I think it's just nice 
from a training perspective to have a refresh and do different things. So I think if you're always going long, for me, it's just mentally taxing. Um, I like that element of going fast. And I know Zach feels the same way. So. Yeah. And I think too, one, first of all, I should say, I think the marathon is probably one of the hardest endurance events to get right. All things included like, you know, ultra marathons and things below a marathon, just because it's kind of that perfect balance where it's just short enough where you have to be running faster than what's going to probably feel comfortable um, on a, like a normal kind of easy day. Uh, but it's long enough where if you get out too fast, you've got plenty of time to pay for that dearly. So it's just really kind of a, uh, a fickle event to get right. And uh, I love it for kind of getting ready for a hundred mile race or an ultra marathon race. If you can kind of plan your schedule appropriately, because essentially when I'm programming a plan for Nicole or anyone else or myself, we're looking at kind of the end process first, like what event am I preparing for? And we're going to try to specialize things towards that. And that doesn't mean that like, if I'm going to be running a hundred miles at a very slow pace, I need to always just be running long and slow. It just means that's what I'm going to want to be doing closest to the race. There's still value in doing some of the shorter, faster workouts earlier in the training program. So if you do a full marathon training program, you kind of take care of some of those early stage training processes, and then you can kind of recover from that effort uh, and start kind of moving into the more specific stuff towards ultra marathons and, and skewing more variables towards that, to that event. And I mean, that's essentially what you did for Western States this year. You did some marathon training kind of at the end of the year last year and bled a little bit into kind of January uh was i can't remember if you did anything in february i think that's maybe about when you kind of stopped doing the road stuff and started moving more towards trail stuff uh but i mean that worked out really well and i think one thing we, we learned from that process too is some of the speed you developed during that marathon block you're still kind of having some of that like we look at kind of just even your your relative uh pace or your pace at a relative at a relative effort I mean, it's just faster than it was a year ago. So you, some of that stuff kind of carries over. Again, if you stay injury-free and consistent, it can, you, you retain a lot of that fitness, and it can it can kind of pay dividends down the road. And it's one of the reasons why I like to um, explain to people when they're curious about someone running a good race, they want to know, like, well, what did they do that, like, 12 weeks leading into it? Because that's got to be the recipe. And that definitely plays a big role to it. But you also have to look at kind of their whole, the whole process too. Like, well, what have they been doing the last few years? Because that also kind of feeds into the future stuff as well as you develop that, that kind of big base to training and things like that. So um, I think with, uh, with ultra running, it's also kind of unique where it's such an umbrella term. You know, I've said this before, I and mean, then you can have a 50 kilometer race that you're running above 10,000 feet, you know, with like, 10,000 feet of climbing and descending, or you can have a six day event where you're on a 400 meter track, but they're all ultra marathons in that you can get completely different athletes, uh, in those two different events. And, and they may, one may not do better than the other in the respective, respective, uh, side of that polar end. And, uh, it does give you that option to kind of be a little more creative and kind of saying, well, I'm kind of tired of running flat roads right now. I think I'm going to move and do something just to prepare for a trail race or, you know, I just did a big buildup in a race to trail race. It's going to be more motivating and mentally refreshing to target something else that's flat or shorter or faster or something like that. So that's kind of, I think, the intrigue to a degree. And, and it, but to Sean, kind of go back to what you were saying, Sean, too, it is kind of interesting because, like, I think there is this kind of appeal to 
oh, if I run a marathon, I wonder what it's like to run 50K. Or if I run 50K, I wonder what it's like to run 50 mile. And then you just kind of keep doing that. And then you end up being in this position where you end up doing races you would have never dreamt you were going to do before. And I don't necessarily know that the motivation there is because it somehow makes it more challenging or more impressive to run 100 miles versus a marathon. Uh, I just think it just depends on the person. Some person might run a marathon and be really good at it and think, I want to find out exactly how fast I can do this event. And they may just hammer that event for you know, the majority of their career. Whereas someone else might have that mentality of like, they're curious about, well, how far can I go? Or what does it feel like to run for an entire day? And then they kind of keep testing those waters. And, and then you just end up in like a 200 mile race at some point. And wonder how you, you got there. not me. <laughs> I, I always find you know, like for me, like right now with the, the sort of rowing stuff I do, I know that if I'm specifically trying to peak for a certain distance, then spending too much time at another distance always seems to be detrimental to it. There's some advantage to that. And so I'm just wondering, like for, you know, just for an example, because most people can relate to a marathon. I mean, you guys are world-class ultra-distance runners, you know, 100-mile distance. You know, I, I think most people would fairly say you guys are some of the best in the world. And so what – what does that mean for a marathon for you guys? When you say, I want to do a decent marathon, you know, obviously the best marathon runners in the world are, you know, sub 210 for males and females. I don't, what is it about for 10 minutes slower or something like that? But what is, so what for you guys to say, I'm going to run a marathon and it's going to be beneficial to me. What sort of times are you guys looking at? Is it three hours, the 245? Where are you guys at for, for marathon times that would translate into useful uh, training for, for a hundred mile run? You want to go or try? You can. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think the interesting thing about both, and maybe unique thing about Nicole and myself is, I wouldn't say either of us have really ever done a true, like full, full blown marathon build up or season, or even I would say you almost need a couple seasons at the marathon to really get it right. I've done, I've done plenty of marathons as kind of like training workouts or as like fitness checks and. And Nicole's kind of done the same thing to a degree. Uh, and what was your, you ran a 255 marathon last year. Yeah. You know, I think, I think if we had given that a full six months based on kind of the way your workouts went and things, you were probably, probably closer to like a 250 and you, maybe we'll figure that out this year. Um, but I mean, I, you know, the way to kind of maybe think about it too is like if you look at the Olympic trials qualifier for women, it's a 245. So that's kind of a, a sought after number for the, the pointy end of the spear for, for women marathoners. And you get, you get, you know, some of the top women American uh, marathoners running low 220s. And then on the men's side, like you said, Sean, you know, you, you almost have to be 210 or under to be in the consideration of like having a chance at getting to the Olympics. Uh, you know, so for me, I've done a few marathons in the last, last couple of years as kind of like training, training races and stuff like that. And been right around like a two and a half hour range. And I've done, I actually, my closest marathon specific buildup was actually in preparation for a hundred K. Cause if you do like a flat hundred K, I don't think the training for that differs drastically from what a good marathon buildup would look like. So I've taken 100K races a bit more seriously in the past just because I've been on the World 100K team or the, the U.S. the U.S. Uh, team for World 100K championships in the past. And, you know, when you're on a team like that, you definitely want to do your due diligence and preparation. And I would say some of my better marathon buildups were in preparation for 100K. And it's one of those things where personally, I, I, 
I don't want to say I regret not going through full marathon stuff because I don't know. I don't think like I would have ever been fast enough in the marathon to, to really make a go of it other than just chasing my own personal PR, especially when we're talking about some of these fast guys, like two tens and stuff like that. That's, that's out of my reach. Um, so it's, some of it is just like, you know, you, you find something you're good at and you kind of hyper-focus on that to a degree versus trying to target an event that maybe you're not as good at. Um, and, and that's kind of where I see the marathon more or less. Let me switch gears a little bit and talk about my, my favorite subject. I, I know Zach has incorporated a little bit more, uh, meat into his diet with regard to recovery. Are you doing, has any of that rubbed off on you, Nikki, or is that, are you kind of doing what you've always been doing? I know Zach says after a big race, he'll get to eat a couple of steaks and it seems to help with his recovery. Is that something you've experimented with? Um, you know, I've always eaten meat after races, not to the level that You've eaten you meat do. during races. Yeah, <laughs> I have eaten meat during races. I love chicken and salmon during a race for whatever reason. It tastes good to me. Um, but yeah, I think it has rubbed, rubbed off on me a bit. I definitely have increased my meat intake um, since meeting Zach, and I'm sure your influence as well. Um, and I do think it aids with recovery. So I don't shy away from meat. And I have been eating more red meat than I historically have in the past. Um, my favorite is salmon. That's just always been my favorite um, meat to go to, um, if you call it a meat. But um, I, I do find that I'm continuing to increase the amount that I eat. And I, I do think it's helpful. Yeah, and I would say like, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but if I had to pick three foods that I see Nicole eating on a fairly frequent basis, it would be salmon, cheese, and then some sourdough bread. Yeah. <laughs> so and you, vegetables. I, yeah, I that's true. Yeah. yeah. You'll usually have like a salad with the, on, or put the salmon and stuff on a salad at, yeah. at night. So if we, if we, if you stretch out to four things, it'd be a salad, <laughs> salmon, cheese, and then some sourdough bread. And, yeah. and, and butter from time to time. You like to put butter on that stuff sometimes yeah. too. So, uh, yeah. Anything else food related? What do you eat during a race? Um, then I take a lot of gels, but I can pretty much eat anything. I don't have stomach issues. So, um, I could eat really anything. Um, if I'm in Europe, I've eaten, um, bread and cheese at aid stations because that's what they have. So um, I'm pretty, I'm fortunate that I don't have um, issues with my stomach like a lot of runners do. Well, and I, I think part of that is, I mean, you, you, you probably have a strong stomach, but the other thing I notice when I watch kind of what you're doing during a race versus what I would consider the norm is you're just not taking in as much. Like you're taking in, when you say like, oh, I'm going to take in some gels or I'm going to take in some cliff blocks, which are essentially like a, like a, a gummy bear more or less, uh, you know, you're taking in maybe 20 to 40 grams of that an hour. Uh, whereas I think a lot of, you know, there's some folks, this is the other end of the spectrum, but there's folks who will flex that up to almost 90 grams. So you're definitely on the low end of in-race fueling, which is partly probably why your diet has ended up where it is at, because that's what you found. You find that you race well when you're not having to eat constantly. And if you're going to take that approach, it's like, yeah, you definitely want to be, you know, skewing your metabolism towards burning fat versus, you know, going glycolytic. Uh, 
so I think there's some there's some tidbits in there even though I know you're not planning things out and thinking I'm going to hit you know x number of grams per hour you're more or less going through an aid station it's like okay that looks good I'm going to have and it just happens to come out to be at around those rates cool anything else to chat about um no. Um, <laughs> You've said it all. You told your life story. Yeah. I feel like I've shared my content. How about you, Sean? You got any other questions? Uh, just what do you got coming up, Nick? Are you, got, are you planning on any other, on any other races coming up? Any big ones this year or next year? What's, what's the season look? Is that going to get through in the Western States next year? Or what's the, yeah, you, I hope so. How do you guys divvy up who gets to do what? Because I know, I know Zach was out supporting you for years. And, you know, I suppose, I suppose the, the, the sort of the, the – the opposite sometimes works as well. Yeah, no, Zach, um, hopefully he'll be doing Western States next year. I don't know. I may sit next year out. Um, I might have had my fill at this point. But um, we're both doing that Spartathlon race in Greece. And then from there, I don't know. Depends how quickly I feel like I recover. Um, it's a far distance, so I'm not sure about that one. Yeah, September is when the Spartathlon is. So there's definitely time left in the season to do another race if you'd want to, but it's sometimes good, I think, to maybe not put something on the schedule right away at that point when you're doing a new race like that, because you just don't necessarily know like how you're going to feel after it, and you don't want to necessarily force another training block because you had something on the schedule when you haven't given yourself quite the right amount of time to kind of bounce back from that. Um, and then you're also kind of deciding on whether you want to do a little more specific marathon work at the end of the year too to kind of save yourself some time at next year to do more ultra runs, ultra marathons and stuff like yeah. that. And, well, Nicole was seventh at Western this year. So she's automatically reinvited, uh, before the race, you swore off Western States. You're like, this is the last time I'm going to do this. And, and part of that is just because, um, we haven't really, we didn't really talk about this, but Nicole's had a, a very like diverse experience with the race at Western States. You've been sixth twice, seventh once, you basically hallucinated and passed out at like mile 80 one year. And then another year you were in the race, but didn't make it to start line. Cause uh, what was it? It was a calf abscess yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So like uh, you, you've, you've kind of seen, and then you've had a race where you, you finished, but outside of where you wanted, you were like 17. 17th place. So you've seen so much of that course. You've seen it go well. You've seen it gone badly. You've seen it gone kind of like somewhere in between. And yeah, it's kind of like, it's always good to try new things. So as I'm kind of looking back at ultra running, I want to say that I've done a number of races. So by doing that Western States every year, it kind of is, it's the, it's oftentimes the big race that I'm focused on. So it would be nice to open up my season to have some other opportunities. Cool. And where, where can people find you, Nicole? Um, are you talking about social media? Well, I mean, you can, we can find you at home working or on the road traveling. Yeah, <laughs> on American Airlines because I love the airplanes. Um, but um, yeah, I have um, um, Instagram at ntcalo, um, or no, I changed it. Yeah, you changed it to at nkbitter on Instagram. Um, I got a feeling Nikki's not big at social media. Yeah. <laughs> My social media is not impressive. I'm not going to lie. I'm not very motivated and not, not very inspired. And my, um, 
but you know, it's fun for me to follow other people. So. Yeah, I think good for you. I mean, it's good for you. And not everybody needs to be involved in that silliness. There's a lot of craziness in it. So, yeah. Yeah. If you follow Nicole on Instagram, you'll get a handful of posts per month. And if you comment on something, she'll definitely respond to you. Uh, So follow her on Instagram, uh, ask her a bunch of questions, get her excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) I like watching everyone else's. I just, cool. I'll pick it up someday. Well, hopefully, hopefully you don't watch my stuff because you may, it may, I, I may offend too many people. So anyway, <laughs> all right, man. Thanks, thanks so much, Nikki. Thank thanks you. For, uh, keeping Zach in line, and uh, you know, it's uh, my job. You seem like such an intelligent person. I, I, I have to say, I'm a little surprised you're with Zach. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know <laughs> the truth. You guys, crazy. you guys are a great couple. I, I would say, are you guys? Uh, you know, as a husband-wife team, are you guys like the, the, the fastest ultra-marathon runners in the world? Is there any other husband-wife couple that has a better resume than you guys? Um, there's, there's some fast couples, actually. Yeah, I, I would say um, if we're looking at probably the best resume couples, I mean, it's tough to beat Killian Jornet and Emily Forsberg, right? Like, they're kind of – they're very much mountain runners. So like, you're not going to see them doing a diverse set of ultra marathon stuff in terms of like the, the, the terrain. Uh, but you know, Killian, it's hard to argue against him being one of the best trail ultra mountain runners, uh, in the history of the sport. And, you know, Emily's, uh, pretty high up there amongst the women as well. So I'm guessing if you did a poll, like those two would probably garner the most votes. Um, but we were, we get a pretty decent resume together as well. And, and I'll give one plug to one of what I think one of Nicole's most impressive races was, was in 2015, there's this race called the, the Rocky raccoon 100 mile in Texas. And you ran 14 hours and 22 minutes on that course, which comes out to about eight and a half minutes per mile for a hundred miles. And, uh, it's not Western States, so it doesn't get as much kind of fanfare around it. Uh, it's fairly popular hundred miler though. It's been tested by a lot of really highland North American ultra marathon runners. And that 1422 is a tough time to beat on that course. I don't suspect it's going to go down anytime soon, but um, who knows? It, it, it's a, it's one of, I think one of your better races. So I'll put a plug in for that one. Thanks. <laughs> it was a good day. So it used to be the trail record, but now it's second. So I'm happy with that. Good for you guys. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Nikki, thanks. for taking time out of your day. I don't, you know, I don't know if you've got to fly to somewhere to get back to your, your legal responsibilities, but thanks. Not for until it. Monday. Oh, good for you. Awesome. You get a legit weekend. Yeah. <laughs> right, awesome. Hey, folks. Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing, and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.